just going to pray for Chris as she comes uh, to speak with us this morning to us of your word, Lord. We thank you for her and we are grateful for her and for the care uh, and her pastoral heart and her wisdom and her love for you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as she speaks to us, we would hear of your hope and that she would know that hope deep in her heart for herself this morning as well. So, Father, bless her as she comes to us and open our hearts to hear all that you have to say. Amen. Thank you, Julie. God is good. God is good, is he not? We have known his goodness in our lives. So, so we are up to the fourth and final study uh, in our series, it's coming, Blue Planet, Green Planet, God's Planet. And if you've missed any of the previous ones, please do catch up from our website so that you get the complete picture of what we've looked at in this. They do kind of build on each other, particularly the first three. So do listen and catch up if you've missed any. So we've been thinking about the created world around us and how we can better understand what scripture says to us about it and how we can develop a biblical attitude and approach to the earth and to God's creation. And I hope that in the course of us doing that in these last few weeks, that your perspective and your understanding has widened, that it's shone some light onto the nature of God's love for his whole creation, that he made his covenant with all living things on the earth, and that his purpose for us as humanity was for us to live on the earth as his image bearers. We've looked at what that means. Called to take care of and live in peace with his creation in a way that reflects him and his relationship with us. So today, uh, to round off this journey, I want to look to the future. We couldn't really um, finish a service, uh, a series on creation care without really finishing here, without looking to the future. So I've got two passages of scripture to read, so we will do that and then we'll pray. They will be on the screen for you to follow along, but if you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. So a few verses from 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm starting to read from verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven 
and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And now we're going into Romans 8. Some verses from Romans 8. I'm reading from verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We will unpack those passages together. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, come and work in us afresh this morning. Increase our vision and give us a bigger picture of who you are and your plan for this world and our place in that plan. Show us now our future hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there's our title for today. We're looking at new creation. So today I want us to look at this word, eschatology. Eschatology is a theological word. It is the Christian doctrine of hope. This is what we call the hope that we have. And eschatology you didn't know you were going to have a theology lesson today, did you? Eschatology, it includes that ultimate hope that we have that Jesus will return and eternal life in God's kingdom. Eschatology includes that, our ultimate hope. And it also includes the hope that that generates in us now along the way, the hope that is for us here and now. So it's the hope in the sense of that confident expectation of that thing that we perceive as being some way off in the future, but we know it's coming. And it's also the hope that that hope gives us for now for our life now. We can live lives that are founded on positive and relevant hope because of that ultimate hope. That's what eschatology is. And I want us today to have a look, and it will be a brief look by necessity, at what scripture tells us about the ultimate future 
and particularly in relation to the earth, because that's what we've been looking at in our series. And this is not something that we look at very often, but it is important that we do, because we can be really quite vague about these things quite a lot of the time, and we're not quite sure what we think or what we're supposed to think. And this, it is difficult because actually scripture is quite vague on this subject. It does tell us something, but it's more of an outline than giving us any of the details. And the future of the planet is also one of the issues where scripture seems to contradict itself. There are two main theories about the future of the planet. Both of them appear in scripture. So one of them is the replacement theory. And our passage from 2 Peter is one of the key texts for that theory. Because it it seems to describe the earth being destroyed by God. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done within it will be laid bare. Now, if if your general understanding of what will happen at the end of time has been that God is going to destroy the earth and create a brand new heavens and a brand new earth, it will have arisen from passages like this one. The other theory is the transformation theory, and our passage from Romans is one of the key texts for that theory. So this speaks of creation being liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So the replacement theory believes that the earth will be destroyed and that references in scripture to a new heaven and a new earth That's referring to a new act of creation. He's going to replace the old ones with new ones. And the transformation theory believes that the current earth will be renewed by God at the end of time. It won't be destroyed. It will be renewed and transformed. It believes that the earth is included in God's redemption plan and that references in scripture to the new earth mean the restored earth that will live under the rule of God's peaceable kingdom under the king of all things and so it is a bit puzzling isn't it because scripture contains both of these passages and they seem to be teaching contradictory things. The earth cannot be both utterly destroyed and transformed and renewed. It has to be one or the other. You know, and does that mean that that, that there is a, a part of scripture that is just wrong? Does it mean that that Peter and Paul, who wrote Romans, really should have kept in better communication with each other about their ideas? 
What we have to do with questions like this is we look at the span of the whole of Scripture. We look at what light can be shared on these passages by other passages. And also how, how can our understanding of what these passages mean, how can that be shaped by the picture that is painted by Scripture as a whole of God and of creation? My personal feeling, shaped by what I see in the rest of Scripture, is that God is as committed to his non-human creation as he is to his humans. And the idea that he would just throw in the towel and destroy it in order to start again and create something new, that just doesn't, for me, it doesn't fit with the God that I see in Genesis and throughout scripture, who repeatedly includes all things in his salvation message. I believe that God has far more positive messages for his beloved creation in his word than just that it's heading for ultimate annihilation and destruction. God created a world which he said was good. And God's judgment of his creation as good in Genesis 1, that's very important in this question. After the flood, God makes a covenant not just with Noah and his family as we saw the other week. His covenant is with every living creature, with all life on earth. And the Psalms and the prophets, they continue that trajectory again and again. They include the earth in what they say and in what they tell us that God is saying. And they do that in ways that actually we have tended to ignore or just pass over because we've just assumed that that just relates to their more primitive way of living back then. But if you read those scriptures with a fullness of salvation for the whole earth perspective, it is very clear that God's redemption and renewal is not just for his humans. I'm going to read you some words from Dave Bookless. He's the national director of Arosha UK, that's a network of Christian environmental organizations. And he says this in his book. The map is clear and it points in one direction only, God's constant commitment to and saving love towards the whole created order. Scripture shows a relationship of love betrayed by humanity and God continually seeking ways to regain that love and restore those broken relationships, finally sending his son to die and rise again. 
all the way through the three strands of God, people and the earth with its creatures have been woven together, building towards a powerful conclusion of restored harmony. It would be unthinkable that at this stage, God would suddenly decide to abandon his creation and focus only on human beings. So that leaves us with a bit of a puzzle because what should we make of that passage from 2 Peter then? Probably the most helpful way to understand a passage like this is to read it as imagery. It's a good illustration of the problems that we can get if we don't understand the kind of text that we're reading and that the Bible is made up of many different kinds of writing and genres. If we insist on reading every word of the Bible literally or through the lens of our own culture, which is what we're more likely to do, um, rather than the one that it was written in, it doesn't help our understanding. Isaiah very often uses the image of fire to refer to God's judgment. Uh, And other Old Testament prophetic writings, they are full of this kind of imagery that we saw in 2 Peter. Here's one from Micah. It is imagery. And the images are being used in a particular way to convey a particular message. And the message needs other references for us to understand it. For example, if I said that because in Revelation 6 there is a lamb who opens a scroll, that I deduce from this that scripture tells us that lambs and sheep must be capable of reading and writing. Or even that because it's there, my saviour is a woolly mammal. You would know that I'm not reading it right. The lamb is an image. And it's an an image that we do recognise and we understand that it's an image because we've seen it and heard it used before. And so is fire, used a lot in scripture as an image for God's judgment. And so we can sensibly presume that it is used as an image in the same way in that passage in 2 Peter. God's judgment will indeed be dramatic when he comes. It's going to be a notable day in the history of the earth. It will be awesome and there will be no going back from it when it comes. But it's not going to involve the actual destruction of the earth and replacing it with a new one. It's really interesting, I found this really interesting, historically the early Christians would never have dreamed that God would just destroy the earth, destroy his creation at the end of time. The idea, this this idea that God might just destroy the earth and start again, 
whilst at the same time making sure that those valued humans are plucked out and rescued and removed, that idea seems to have really emerged and gained in strength roughly around the same time that humans were building cities and were moving away from the rural landscape into a man-made landscape in ever-increasing numbers. That's really interesting, isn't it? The path that humanity has taken us has distanced us from creation. We don't live alongside it anymore in anything like the ways that our ancestors did. And it's really interesting that that seems to make us feel that it's more disposable. You can see that it would have just made convenient sense to imagine that it didn't matter what we did to the earth because we are the only things of real value, that God's plan is for us, we are the pinnacle of his creation. And everything else was destined for destruction anyway. You can see how that kind of thinking in, in the times of the Industrial Revolution and beyond, they would have found that idea very helpful. But our understanding today has started to move back towards a more Romans 8 understanding of these things. So let's have a look at those verses. So we can see here that creation is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, we know that all too well. We have contributed to that frustration by preventing creation from achieving its ultimate purpose, which is glorifying God, the creator. And the way that they do that is by being what and how God intended his creation to be. And it also has this image of creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth. That is such a vivid image and it is actually so poignant as a description of our world today that it is groaning with pain. But let's notice that it's not groaning with the pain of terminal illness and decline. It's groaning with childbirth pains. This is not the kind of pain that leads to death. It's the pain that leads to life, new life. And this pain, this frustration that creation is experiencing, it is going to end. Verse 21, creation is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay and it will be brought into the freedom and the glory that the children of God will enjoy. So vital point for us to note, number one, this creation has a future and its future is not death, it is life. Vital point to note, number two, the ultimate hope of creation and of ourselves 
It lies in something that only God can do. It is God who will do this work of transformation. And his doing of that has been part of his redemption plan from the very beginning. Have a look at Colossians chapter 1. There's a section of it that is a hugely significant passage about Christ. It starts in verse 15 by talking about creation and Christ's relationship with creation. And then in verse 20, he is reconciling, reconciling all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so these words, again, like we've seen before in this series, those words are very clearly in the context of talking about the whole of creation. The death and resurrection of Christ are making peace among all things and reconciling all things to himself. Those words don't really fit with the idea of the created world being destroyed, that it's just heading for destruction, it's going to be thrown on the scrap heap and replaced by something else. Those words are about a new beginning for what is already here. A couple more scriptures. Briefly, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, says John. But the Greek word that he's using for new, that word is usually used for the renewal of something that is already there. It's not used for something that didn't previously exist and now does. That would be a different word. Revelation 21, 5. God says, I am making all things new. He's not saying, I am making new things. He's saying he is renewing and regenerating what is already there in the form that he wants it to be for his kingdom. Verse four of that passage says he will wipe every tear from our eyes and he will do the same for his creation. There will be no more death or distorted relationships. He will wipe away the damage and the harm and the distortion and he will reshape with joy all of his creation. And it's important for us to understand that only God can do that. There is no environmental program or plan or policy which, if only it was fully implemented and followed, it would restore us to some kind of new Eden. The story of creation, creation's own story that is in the Bible, 
It begins and ends with an act of God. And the idea that we're on our own in this, that no one is coming to save us and it's all down to us, that's quite prevalent actually in environmentalist thinking. But it's a wrong understanding. There is very much someone who is coming to reconcile all things to himself. And if we go back to our word eschatology, this is our eschatological hope for the created world. That it has been included in God's salvation plan from the very beginning. And he is going to make all things new. But remember that I said (coughs) that our eschatology, our doctrine of hope, doesn't only mean that distant hope, that ultimate hope that's out there in the future somewhere. It also includes hope now, hope for living, hope for today, for now. If we go back to Romans 8, yeah, there it is. We can see in verse 19 of Romans 8 that creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. It is jumping up and down in anticipation. It is straining to see if something has arrived yet. Why is creation waiting for that? Because we have a role in this. The work is God's, the restoration will be God's, but we have a part to play. And it seems to me that there's a really important thought here for us about understanding our identity, our true identity as children of God. Because somehow, as we deepen our understanding of what it means to be children of God, and as we start to live in that reality, to truly live in the reality of being children of God, bearing his image, something happens that is to do with creation. Creation is waiting with expectation, with anticipation for us to start to grasp our identity and what that means. Because when we start to understand that, we start to live as we truly are and as God truly intended with a heart that reflects his heart. God will bring the transformation. And it won't fully come until Jesus returns. But that doesn't mean that that we have no part in it, that there is nothing for us to do. Understanding our identity means that we have a calling to participate 
in God's purposes and work with him in the world where we are. We understand this very well when it comes to salvation. We understand that God is saving the world, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything. The work of salvation is his, but we join in with it. We offer ourselves to be used by him in the work that the Spirit is doing. God does it. But we have our part to play, a role in doing what we can to bring creation closer to its goal, to bring it closer to its release from that frustration, from that bondage, and closer to being able to fulfill its purpose of giving glory to its creator. We have this problem, don't we, of what's the point of me doing something little? I can do so little, it won't make any difference. And we can get stuck in that. Well, doing the little thing that I can do, that'll make no impact, so I won't do anything. But one definition of faith is to do our small part and trust that God will take that and that he will do something with it and alongside it which is beyond us. That's what he does when we act in faith. Some of you have asked about some, some help and guidance as to what you could do in response to what we've been learning. And I want to recommend this book. L is for lifestyle, Christian living that doesn't cost the earth by Ruth Valerio. I've put some information on a little sheet that you can pick up if you're interested in that. In each chapter of the book, she takes a letter of the alphabet and she writes about a creation care issue, and she suggests an action that you can take, or at least think about. It's a very accessible book, and that's what I would recommend if you want some guidance as to simple things that you can do in response. I'm gonna bring us to a close with a quote from Jürgen Moltmann, a great theologian of our times. He says this in his book, Theology of Hope. From first to last, Christianity is eschatology. It is hope, forward-looking and forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. This hope that we have for the future should turn our focus to the present. The here and now of our lives needs to be lived in the light of that ultimate promise for the future. And when we do that, it has the effect of starting to bring that transformation here and now. The owner is coming back. Psalm 24, where we started 
this series. It begins with, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. But it finishes, that psalm, look it up, it finishes by proclaiming the arrival of the king, the owner. Open up the gates, the king is coming in, not as an invader or as an enemy, but as the rightful owner coming back, coming to claim his beloved creation. He's coming back and he's going to renew the whole of his creation. And we can align ourselves with his purposes now. Each small thing that we do is a statement that we believe this hope that we have, that we believe it's true. We do it from our hearts because we've come to understand who we are and what that means. And we do it with confident hope because we know that God will renew and restore all things and because we have his spirit in us. And we do it with faith because we know that we are living within the purposes of God and playing our part in his great story and his great plan. Let's be quiet for a few moments and then I'll pray. Jesus, we want to ask that you will lift our heads, lift our eyes, so that our gaze reaches further than what we can humanly see. Give us a glimpse of what's ahead to inspire us for the present, for now so that we can live with hope and act with hope and make choices with faith and hope. Please will you show us how we can transform the present by living and acting in the light of what you set before us for the future challenge us in our thinking in ways that are lived out in our doing come holy spirit come and do something in us that only you can do we look forward to your coming jesus in expectation and hope and in your name we pray. Amen.